The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Shall we begin? Smiley is a suspicious person. You won't know who to trust. Let's begin. Welcome back, fellow spiners, to the Spies Like Us podcast. That's the podcast, of course, where we discuss the representation of tradecraft on screens, large and small, and sometimes the lack thereof, as might be the case uh, here. I'm Todd. With me, as always, is Fred Kennedy. Fred, say hi to the nerds. Tell them what we're going to talk about. Hi, nerds. We're going to talk about uh, a really good, bad B-movie today at Todd's request um, called Max Ultra Spy. Max Knight. Max Knight. Oh, Max Knight, yeah. yes. Spot. All right, yeah. Uh, 2000 film. Um, and like you said, a B-movie. We haven't done one of those before. Interesting story on how this movie got picked. But first, uh, Fred, our last episode, we talked about the 2015, I believe, movie, Man from Uncle. And uh, we discussed at some length uh, and lamented about the uh, very poor prospect, why we were certain there was not going to be a sequel. You've got news for us, don't you? Yes, there is going to be a sequel, and it looks like Henry Cavall is going to be Napoleon, which I thought would he would be out of reach uh, because he. Uh, I just figured he'd be just too big box office. But it sounds to me like he's going to be in it, and it really cries out for one because, as we said, the one we reviewed was a prequel, you know, a backstory for the two, our two heroes. So uh, they'll probably have to get another Ilya Kuryakin, but they will. But that's okay. I'm fine. I'm. Let's do it. Yeah. I hope they find a way, speaking of Ilya, <laughs> I hope they find a way of bringing David McCallum in, even if it's just a, a walk-on cameo, because he's still alive. And they didn't do that before. Fingers crossed on your behalf. Uh, yeah, yes. I think I think Cavill must have had this in mind as his backup plan because it's coming so soon after he really kind of dropped out of the running for the James Bond role. I have to yeah. think I have to think he had already worked it out with his agent that that said if I don't get Bond, I want to do Man from Uncle. And uh, yeah, yeah, excited about that. Now I want to tell that uh, this this is a. The, the movie we're talking about today, Max Knight, uh, it's one of our further astray from the spy movie formula movies. I'd say it really actually kind of stretches the definition of what we can call a spy movie. But uh, what happened was, I've got some friends that have got an excellent podcast called Sci-Fi Wise Guys. I saw an ad for a movie, for a movie called Female Apocalypse Warriors. It looked goofy and cool. I love post-apocalypse. I love female warriors. I recommended it to them. And I thought, like, what I'll do, because it'll enhance my enjoyment of the movie, I figured, if I can also look forward to. So I waited for it to show up in their feed. And I kind of lucked out. I kind of dodged a bullet. Because the movie, it turns out, got renamed at some point, or at least the version they found, was called Warriors of the Apocalypse. So I ended up listening to the episode without having seen the movie. Turns out to be a really good idea because it is by far and away the worst movie that they've reviewed. They specifically warned me not to watch it. I thought while I was listening to it, I was like, oh my God, 
I'm going to have to watch this because if I've inflicted this pain on my friends and then don't watch the movie myself, like, what does that say about me? But misery loves company. The old uh, saying, misery loves company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they let me off the hook. I'm grateful to them. I want to highly recommend, though, the podcast episode that they made out of it. I thought it was one of their best and funniest. It's episode 152 from a oh, about a month back now, I think. Did did they do did they do kind of a mystery science theater, um, going over on it or no? No, they do. Uh, they do no. about a half hour, forty minute uh, discussion uh, thing for uh, all things science fiction that goes straight to stream. With a few deviations on that rule. Anyways, I do want to highly recommend the podcast, Sci-Fi Wise Guys. Most specifically, episode 152. It's called Sad Max Chapter 2, Warriors of the Apocalypse, 2009. So, but it did get me thinking. Maybe, and they didn't request this, but I'm doing it anyways because I feel like I owe it to them. Maybe I can make amends by covering a bad B status spy movie on this podcast now we definitely found a b movie whether or not it's bad we're going to talk about that it's got some fans uh but here goes it is a 2000 australian science fiction film created for american both american television and international distribution our protagonist works for no particular agency and i'd say he's kind of more of a superhero character than a spy action character, but he does he does grab some spy action hero DNA. The movie definitely um, is aware of the action spy genre. Over on the red team, we have a wealthy supervillain in the model of a James, very much in the model of a James Bond villain. And uh, speaking of featured agencies, the FBI does have a mole in the supervillain's operation, but that turns out to be an extremely tiny plot point. Um, I was not clear on the year that this movie is supposed to take place because I see a lot of futuristic stuff. Definitely like robot gadgets. What do we got? We've got optical camouflage. Uh, we've got tiny robotic, robotic drones and holographic projection. Um, there's, the movie is very dense in a mix of made-up kind of slang and computer jargon, uh, which I think uh, if you're going to get on board with this movie, you're going to have to decide that you think that dialogue is cute. How did it land with you, with you, Fred? Yeah, I just think it was all part of its charming uh, camp. And... The other thing I wanted to say, it was uh, strangely prophetic uh, in that it predicted a lot of things that would come later, like consumer drones and uh, Fitbits and Oculus Rift virtual reality headsets, mm -hmm. um, Blade Runner 2049, uh, where the protagonist develops a relationship with an artificially intelligent virtual assistant which i'm going to want to get uh, which, into a little more detail on on some of those points later especially the digital assistant mm -hmm. so it, in a weird way um it was a movie of its time yes 2000 
but it, all, it also was strangely prophetic, which gives it some positive points, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, however, the idea that the movie takes place in the future is undermined by an enormous amount of 90s pop culture references. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, you know, me uh, always looking for any tiny little detail. I noticed that the, the FBI agent's uh, identification badge has an expiration date of 2002, which is further evidence that the movie is supposed to take place in actually 2000, the year that it came out. Uh, I asked, I got a chance to spend some time on the phone with the director of this film. This is one of the questions I asked him about whether or not it was supposed to be set in the future. And he said it was just supposed to be set outside of time. So there's the official answer on that one. Um, There is uh, apparently still some kind of government um, if in case I didn't mention, this is very much a cyberpunk movie. And one of the hallmarks of cyberpunk is often that uh, the collapse of governments and corporations taking over the roles, like the rise of the power of corporations, especially with corporations taking over the roles that government usually supplies. Uh, the movie Rollerball uh, got into that. Mm. Do you remember that, or have you ever seen Rollerball? I haven't seen Rollerball. The one I was thinking of, of was RoboCop. Oh, well, Rollerball, James Kahn is in it, and it's a futuristic, fascistic state. And, and as you say, corporations each kind of run things, and the corporations have their own team. And I remember at one point they said, we will now stand for our corporate anthem. And that was a movie back in the 70s, so it was kind of prophetic that way. All right. That does sound like a movie that I might enjoy. Do you recommend it? Is it good? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure it, it would fit in the spy category, but yeah. All right. It was kind of prophetic in that way. <clears throat> um, yeah, in addition to uh, pulling from some James Bond tropes, including a very James Bondy title sequence with uh, digital silhouetted ladies doing their sexy stuff, Um, I see influences here from the Mission Impossible films, which were uh, uh, getting in gear around this time. Also, the movie Ghost in the Shell. Um, Also, maybe the movie Hackers, which I haven't seen, but I know that people of a certain age have a lot of fondness for it. Uh, I also, and maybe this is my age as an old man, I also got a kind of a Hal Dave kind of vibe from 2001 okay. as with Max's, Max's communication with his uh, proto Siri guidance system, um, you know, open the pod bay door, Hal with, in 2001, right. How that discussion was going on. So I got kind of a vibe that way, a Hal Dave kind of thing. Right. And then the other, the other major hallmark of, of cyberpunk is of course that like what I like to say, like, Stuff that we think of today as super advanced technology has gotten so commonplace that you can basically find it on Craigslist. And uh, we, we see here that the hacker culture and, and a kind of punk culture uh, have really come together. Very, very colorful, large background cast of characters with an awful lot of piercings and uh, goofy, vibrantly colored haircuts. Um, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say also, as far as um, Max Knight being kind of more of a superhero, there are sometimes I got some Batman vibes off of him, you know, mm-hmm. in, in terms mm-hmm. of being able to, you know, being this super genius that can go to a computer and, and like search through the entire world's emails in like a matter of minutes. Uh, yeah. kind of stuff. And, and sometimes the way he like kind of busts out of his, uh, headquarters in his, in his muscle car speeding to the rescue of the heroine. And he's got the rocket launcher shooting out of the front yeah. of his car. Felt more like Batman than Bond in a few places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got to mention, uh, two, like, uh, you know, okay. So very punky characters. And then right in the middle, I just got to mention it. There's a, really really weird and out of place scene where they suddenly bust into a a disco dance number to that's the way i like it um note to future filmmakers punks do not like disco the punks punks and disco do not mix (laughs) um fitbit i like i like that you mentioned that too uh what about the um you had a, a Tama, Tama, Tamagotchi. What what did, what did you want to say about this? This is the item. When when the movie starts out, like the kind of the cold open is Max is br- doing a Mission Impossible, Ethan Hunt style break in to a high tech facility, and the item that he ends up stealing is what now? Uh, well, they call it a Tamagotchi, which is uh, an electronic toy displaying a digital image of a creature which has to be looked after uh, like a pet. Okay. Um, and we, those are a thing. This was an off-brand one, but but in a way, those, that was a thing back or in the future, I guess. All right. Uh, let's talk about our cast a bit. Um, the, there is, I don't know if there's any connection, I'm going to bring it up anyways, because there's not all that much spy stuff to talk about tonight. Um, There was a British MI5 very famous spy master named Maxwell Knight. Are you aware of him? No. Okay. Uh, No. He is sometimes cited as being the uh, part of the inspiration of the M character in the James Bond films. Uh, Mm -hmm. He ran numerous successful infiltrations of fascist and communist groups within Britain between World War I and World War II. Uh, He's known for having championed the use of female agents uh, in these infiltration operations at a time when uh, women were generally considered unsuitable for that kind of dangerous work. Um, So good on him for that. Clearly, no, even if the, the name, uh, is an intentional reference to that character. Nothing else in common <laughs> at all. Although, yeah. although of course, Max Knight does employ a female uh, as his right-hand woman. Um, so if I were to stretch, I would, I would say that would be the only connection. Um, Max, let's see. No, I'm going to talk about his, his the Spy Corp stuff later. Uh, since we're just on cast here, uh, Anya, A-N-J-A. I'm going to guess that that's Anya. Anya Colby uh, plays the heavy in this movie, uh, a cyber vixen by the name of Tyler. 
who Fred says get get some uh, Britney Spears vibes off of. Uh, I think she's one of the best parts of the movie. What do you think? Yeah, she's having a ball with it. And she is having fun. Most <laughs> most most actors would tell you that playing the villain is the most fun. Right. And she, yeah, she sure got the most out of it. Very magnetic. Yeah. Turns out she did not uh, remain in the acting business for, for much longer than this, which is kind of a shame. I think she definitely had the looks and the personality to be kind of a science fiction B-movie queen if she'd wanted to. Uh, I hope she's doing well. Um, also want to give some credit to uh, Rachel Blakely, who is the actress that plays both Ricky and Claire. So she plays Max's um, digital assistant. Yeah. She, she also plays uh, the, the character that ends up hiring him and becomes the, uh, the love interest. Of, of the sister of the gal who's kidnapped, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, and uh, uh, Mr. Buds, the director, he, he really stressed to me that, like, he, he thought of this movie. You know, I was asking him about being a spy movie, you know, you don't know, whatever. He said, he said, look, he said, look, mate, because he's Australian. He says, mate, he says, it's it's a love story is what it is. Um, mm. More more than anything else. Uh at first, I was wondering, like, oh, is there going to be some weird connection? Like, why, why is this digital assistant modeled on uh, this real life lady? And it turns out it's just a coincidence, and it's just meant to say to us that, like, because Max created Claire, he created and programmed Claire, and so he designed her to look like his personal ideal of a beautiful woman. And it's just a coincidence and a happy surprise for him when he finds out that somewhere out there walking the earth is exactly that, his, his perfect woman. Uh, I didn't even realize they were the same actors. How about you? Uh, no. No. Did you know before? And they got jealous. I, did you know before I told you just now? I, I think I might have read that, but no. Not until it was pointed out, either you telling me or reading it. Sure. Yeah, I wouldn't have noticed except for the notes. And and on the second viewing, I kind of caught where they really like juxtaposed their faces on the screen to, to bring that point home. The reason I bring it up is because that's the hallmark of a good actor. You can play two roles in a movie and have the audience not realize that it's the mm -hmm. same person. Um, mm -hmm. She goes on to do a lot of work, including uh, she goes on to do a lot of work with this uh, director, um, our villain, Zach, uh, I kind of want, okay. Generally speaking, I like him. He's also, uh, having a ball playing the villain. If anything, I think he suffers a little from too much screen time. You know, he's like, he's like, feels like he's in almost half of the scenes, uh, where, I don't know if you noticed, but at, in the early part of the movie, when Max has stolen the Tamagotchi, Zach calls the corporation that's responsible for having lost this valuable piece of technology. He's very mad at them, but he doesn't appear on the screen as himself. It's a highly digitized, kind of weird-looking uh, screen. I would, in the same way of like 
like Jaws don't show the shark until the end. I would have been cool with a movie that had kept him as this mysterious uh, digital voice, voice, voice. Yeah, yeah, very sinister and and mysterious. Um, but overall, kind of cool. Oh, you you had a note on this. Yeah, he kind of. Do you remember Max Headroom? Oh boy, do I! I was a huge <laughs> fan, huge fan of that show. That was that was right at my peak interest in cyberpunk type stuff. Okay, he kind of reminded me of that a little bit. You know, big boisterous, self-important, braggadocio. You know, kind of a villain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a chance too to ask the director about Zach's uh, chair mechanism which he's got this mm-hmm. this this great chair that's on this giant robotic arm and boy fred would you place money on do you think they built that for the movie or or do you think they uh they found some machine that did that and someone said hey we could put a chair on that i wouldn't know they built it for the movie they built it for wow. the movie i was totally surprised filmed this movie in only 14 days yeah, you would think that if they were doing this on the cheap, they wouldn't have built a throne-like chair like that. Yeah, a much a much bigger budget than what I expected. Uh, although the director said the budget was not nearly enough to do what was on the page of the script. Mm-hmm. Uh, the script had like just a lot more stuff in it that they had to go in and say, like, look, we can't do all of this. Um, we're just going to have to pick things that that we like uh the chair was actually a flying chair in the script um and they liked that idea enough to keep it but obviously just didn't have the technology to make it a flying chair um so yeah i mean yeah a low budget film but you know low budget doesn't mean no budget uh right and and this movie if anything it's 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 just that it's really really stretching their their special effects dollar you know they're they're trying to they're trying to cram as much stuff in and they know they can't do it as much as they want or as well as they want but they're just they're just putting it all in and i think it's to the movie's benefit um Mm -hmm. yeah uh that is it for oh well before briefing room we got to do a park bench check that's an easy one no park benches in this movie no parks even Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. So here, since we don't have as much spy stuff as as we'd like to talk about, I thought we could take a little time to talk about what the movie does offer and and get a little more into the technology and the futurism uh, of the film. Starting with, uh, again, we mentioned her before, but the virtual assistant, Claire. Um, And you called it prescient. I totally agree. It's also something the the few critics I've read that reviewed this movie definitely pointed out, that it's weird that it's so long between this movie and movies like her and... Blade Runner 2049. Her, of course, being the Joaquin Phoenix movie where he had a he had, falls in love with the digital assistant. Um, I was thinking about this today, 
And I wonder if it kind of goes like this, if there's kind of a valley that you go into sometimes with science fiction concepts where the first peak of a science fiction com concept of, of interest in it might be when it first becomes imaginable that it might someday happen. And that's where we are in 2000, right? I think the reason this concept kind of went dormant for a while is because we kind of realize we kind of realize like okay yeah that might happen sometime in the future cool idea whatever um, don't expect to see it in my lifetime I think the concept might be coming back around in pop culture because now we're starting to see developments in AI where we might see something like this. Well, back then, don't you think some of them may have held off because there wasn't the CGI CGI or CGI or special effects to pull it off, where this movie didn't care, right? So maybe it's not so much that this movie was imagined it first, but I think what you're suggesting was the idea was out there, but most films held off until they got the special effects to pull it off. What about Interstellar? Did you see that film? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. Uh, I don't remember the robot's name. But there's some really great uh, parts with the main character and, and the robot character where he's literally like uh, asking the, the robot to dial its sarcasm level down from like 90 to 70 <laughs> percent <laughs> and stuff like that, which goes to the point that how much of a relationship can you have with something that you have can program the personality of? I would argue not much. In fact, none. Um, but isn't that the whole conundrum of the original um, Blade Runner with Rachel? It is, it is, but it's it's different because Harrison Ford didn't program Rachel. Right, right. She's right. even if she's even if she's artificial, even if her personality is artificial, it is outside of his control, and I think that's a necessary element to have an actual relationship. Uh, with okay. with a, a digital person, and I think that's part of the point of this movie too, is because um, you know he created his dream girl, and at the end of the movie, he's got the opportunity uh, to spend his life in cyberspace with her. Uh, but mm -hmm. of course, he ultimately chooses the flesh and blood model, which has a few natural advantages um, mm -hmm. as well. Um, but yeah, the idea, I, I listened to a podcast recently where they talked about the upcoming potential for uh, AI that can provide emotional support to humans. People are working on this. Mm -hmm. People are working on the idea of using AI as therapists. Interesting uh, controversy on that. I don't know if you heard about this. Um, this one guy got in a lot of trouble. He ran a study where uh, people were getting online therapy. Half of them got AI therapists. Half of them got human therapists. The thing is, not only did the ones with the AI therapists not know, they didn't even know that was in the mix. So they, they didn't even have it in the back of their head. Highly unethical, as you can imagine. Funny thing is... Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the people that got uh, 
therapy from the AI got that didn't know it was an AI, they did get good results. So um, there could be something there. There could be something there. I've got a few. Um, I've been kind of, you know, the like the three ro- rules of robotics. Isaac Asimov. Okay. Are, are you familiar with them? No, no. Oh, really? No. Okay. Um, he wrote, uh, let's see. I think it's the first one. A robot cannot, through action or inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. And then the second one is like, uh, cannot uh, do such and such or such and such, unless it conflicts with the first rule. And the third rule is like, robots have to obey the orders humans are given given them unless it would conflict with the second rule or the first rule stuff like that i've been kind of working on my like key rules of ai that i think are really important and one of them i've come up with that i think it's pretty damn important is that an ai should never impersonate a human you should always know that you're talking to a human um Otherwise, I think the potential for psychological manipulation, never minding what you could do with marketing or news manipulation, but also like they could run scams on people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, going back to your three rules, mm-hmm. Hal, Hal broke in 2001, Hal broke the first one. That's true. That's true. They didn't, they didn't apply the rules uh, correctly in that case. So that's what I had to say about Claire. Uh, she's another of my favorite elements in the movie. Um, and then this this idea, okay, again, in cyberpunk where corporations are providing services that we usually would get from governments. As we mentioned, Max Knight is an independent contractor. So, uh, you know, he's, he's like a, a gun for hire uh, that needs to see. Mercenary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he utilizes the services of a company called Spy Corp. And apparently he gets his firmware, his, his uh, optical camouflage is one of their products. Um, presumably some of his other stuff is too. Um, they, uh, you know, he, he needs to call customer service at one point when his optical camouflage <laughs> is, is acting up. And he finds out there's a firmware update that he needs to download and that he needs to pay for. That's gotta be the attempt at humor. That's gotta be. Oh know, yeah. Customers are, you know, right in the middle of that action seat. Right. And then do you notice his, his optical camouflage fails him even very shortly after he gets it back online? Mm-hmm. I, I think there, they were, someone was maybe thinking about uh, empire strikes back uh, and the humor and, and the oh. frustration of the, of the hyperdrives. Okay. Uh, not working. Um, I liked of the science fiction stuff. I do like the the way he's got the device that he can project uh, another person's face out in front of him to fool the security protocol. Uh, early in the movie, the um, the chip that they find in the what did you call it, Kamamuchi? The, the um, toy. Yeah, Tamagotchi. Tamagotchi. Uh, it's got a 
it's got a chip in it, which Max and Claire are pretty quick. Max is like really, really super intelligent. Um, and when we say, you know, Claire, oh yeah, I wanted to mention this too about Max and his, his place in history or this movie's place in history. Um, this is of course in 2000, this is in between old Bond and new Bond. This is really where Bond is suffering kind of an identity crisis with creators and audiences. And they haven't figured out who James Bond should be in the new century yet. It's going to be two thousand. It's going to be six more years before we get the Daniel Craig film. This actually, this idea of a hacker, of an action hero hacker, really doesn't ever take hold in in the mainstream stuff. It's always they've always got a hacker assistant or a hacker member of their team, but they never make it their, that's their principal thing. Ethan. Right. I, I yeah. One of the first ones that I kind of like, remember Chloe in 24? She was Jack Bauer's assistant. I didn't see it. Oh uh, yeah. But she's, she was good. She had this like bratty little face and she was always making faces, but Jack Bauer always relied on her when he was running around to do this and that. And she was always on the computer, so, yeah. Right. Um, Ethan Hunt doesn't do his own hacking. He's got Benji to do that for him. Mm -hmm. um, but here, even though you could say, well, Claire is kind of filling that role for Max, it's actually not the case because Max programmed Claire. So all the tools that she's doing to hack anything, that's just like tools that he wrote himself, code that he wrote himself. I just wanted to point that out. It's interesting that we never got that except outside of this movie that I can think of where the, the action hero spy, his primary characteristic was that he was a genius hacker um, at a time where you could argue that really might've fit the zeitgeist. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when I say Max and Claire pretty quickly figure out what this chip does, it's really credit to Max. Um, but they, they figure out what the chip does. It uh, apparently would allow the upload of a full human brain to the internet, which is uh, some Elon Musk shit right there. Mm -hmm. The problem with this that they already know is that, or uh, we know, I'm not sure if they do, is that the amount of power required would be more than is currently believed to be accessible by current technology. Aha, but there's this super genius little girl who's figured out, I forget, it's element 51 or something. Yeah. And it's a source of unimaginable power. Um, and you can kidnap her, use that power to upload himself and, uh, a bunch of people who I don't understand what his connection with or loyalty to them is. Uh, but for some reason, he's got a, a little cult around him. And maybe that's all they are is to him, really, is just psychophants. Well, I want to say maybe that's part of the reason why you were wondering why they centered too much on his face and him because of the supposed hypnotic, charismatic power he has. Remember how he brought along the girl that he kidnapped? 
and how he kind of uh, worked her over, you know, with, with, uh, you know, giving her compliments and telling her how wonderful she was and if we could join forces and how she, how he was reeling her in, mm -hmm. you know, hook, line and sinker, um, kind of seducing her in that way with the power trip and their future plans. So I think we're supposed to believe too, that all his minions are, uh, taken up with his charismatic power. Not like we see, not unlike how we see other people who are, you know, taken up with demagogues to this day. Right. It's kind of like he needs, he needs this psychic energy. He needs for people to look up to him, adore him and, and think that he's mm -hmm. super wonderful. And really, I guess at the end of the day, because what he's planning on doing is taking his cult into an immortal life on the web and then annihilating the remaining population of earth. So maybe it's just that yeah. he can't stand the idea that there's anybody alive that doesn't worship him. And this is his way of making it so that mm -hmm. everyone in alive in the universe is like under his thrall. Um, mm -hmm. Very uh, James Bondy level ambitions. Um, mm -hmm. And and no idea how he expects uh, all the servers that 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 you know run the internet to keep running after there's nobody outside in Meat World or Meat Space. Uh, keeping yeah. keeping the lights on. A little bit of a flaw there. But yeah, I will, in a movie that is mostly devoid of tradecraft, and we're going to talk about, at the end, we're going to talk about whether or not we even should have let this one in as a spy movie. Uh, here's one spy element that we have. We were kidnapping a scientist, and then... Uh, seducing them into working for the bad guys, and uh, we've got and that's that's a that's a big part of Man from Uncle plots. Yes, a big part. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and of the acronym MICE, money, ideology, compromise, and ego. He's definitely uh, trying to fuel her ego. Not only uh, fueling her ego of being a super genius, but also. Uh, you know, since charismatically he seems to be very much out of her league, feeding her ego that uh, he would be interested in her as a romantic partner. Is she, I, I'm not sure, but is she with him up until the point where she finds out he's going to wipe out the rest of the world who's not in the internet? Is that when she? Yes. Um, yeah. Yes, because she she he makes the announcement. The thing is, the element that she's created, it's perfectly stable. You can knock it around and do whatever you want with it. You just can't expose it to air. If you expose it to air, you're fucked. Um, and she finds out that's what they're going to do after they use the power to run the upload. It's going to be exposed to air in the middle of a nuclear power plant. And that's going to wipe out mm -hmm. the world's population. Um more tradecraft notes. Max, buddy, you've been watching way too much James Bond. You're not only using your real name, you're dropping a calling card with your name on it when you when you do a heist uh, and your ego is so big that you have the license plate Max on your supercar. I got a dingy for some spy points there, buddy. <laughs> um, 
not too much to say about the FBI mole in Zach's operation. Uh, he's one of the computer engineers uh, working on setting up the server to do this massive upload. And as soon as his part of the job is done, Zach says, aha, I knew you were FBI all the time and, and uses him as the first guinea pig of, uh, of trying to upload uh, the mines onto the internet. They haven't perfected the process yet. So this guy's mind is just fried. Um, so really just a very, very tiny, such a tiny blip of a something, but that's, we're really looking for the crumbs here for trade craft crumbs. At least this movie did have for two minutes. It had a micro subplot of, uh, an FBI mole in uh, doing an intelligence operation undercover. Um, Over to Tyler and her squad of femme fatales. The movie calls them frequently calls them evil Spice Girls, uh, which is which is a funny nickname for them that I will adopt. Um, Tyler and her Spice Girls are the ones that Zach sends over to kidnap Lindsay, and I just got to ding them on the spy points because they they have these outlandish outfits. You can see them from a mile away, and you would absolutely remember these girls. Um, they're not subtle in their kidnapping, uh, uh, operation. They go about it in full daylight, uh, in a, uh, quote unquote, exciting, uh, rollerblade chase. And if I'm just going to do my due diligence, I just got to ding them for this five points of, uh, you know, maybe lower that profile a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, speaking of which, um, they get Lindsay. They do need her. They're also going to need her disc that has her research on it. And for some reason, the, all of this information can be kept on a single CD-ROM. Um, they send the Spice Girls over in like riot gear to retrieve the disc. I wanted to point out at this point, Lindsay, and that's what kind of gets Max Knight's attention and, and ropes in the, the Ricky character into the action. I just wanted to point out that at this point, Lindsay had already agreed to uh, work with Zach. Uh, he could have just driven her over and had her pick it up. Just say, hey, sis, everything's fine. I just need my stuff. And uh, would have made things much simpler. Um, I did, I mean, you know, again, crumbs. I like the use of night vision goggles. Uh, in that action sequence and uh, Max's use of a bright flash gadget to incapacitate Tyler while she's wearing them. Um, they're, uh, they go on a car chase. The Spice Girls have got their white van. Max loses track of them, but he's able to use his incredible hacking powers to hack the traffic cameras of the city to locate the van. We could call that plus five points. Sure, we've got to look for something. Um, Zach is able to hack the security cameras in the mall to locate Tyler. Uh, in a sequence, which, you know, this, for some reason, the Spice Girls want to go shopping for clothes like minutes or an hour before they're not going to ever need to wear clothes again, uh, real clothes ever, uh, which was odd. The, 
Tyler makes a couple mistakes here. Uh, they're they're chasing Max and Ricky. They know Max is a badass and that Ricky's a nobody. Tyler sends her two flunkies after Max, and she takes her own bad self to go after Ricky. This is misprioritization of the thing. You should send your heavy guy against the heavy and actually never even mind about the girl. Um, a little bit later, Max's heart is running out of juice. We didn't mention this before, but he's got a cybernetic heart. And uh, like you said, like kind of a Fitbit that tells him his power energy. This is all in the mall. This is after they take that detour. Yeah. Uh, when the one girl says, hey, let's stop at the mall to loot the mall. And this all this takes place in the mall. That's right. Um, with Max almost completely out of power, he's got to uh, recharge using the, the, the electricity generators in the basement of the mall. Yeah. While he's doing that, the Spice Girls find Ricky. They decide to just kidnap her instead of continuing to look for the real threat. Uh, they don't actually need Ricky for anything. The best use of her at this point would have been to interrogate her and say, where's where's Max Knight? And they would have quickly found him just right around the corner from there. And uh, movie over, probably. Well, the best, to me, the most non-sensationalistic uh, tradecraft, or could even be a private detective kind of a thing, going back to Sam Spade. Okay. Is when Max and his partner see the tattoo on the evil girl's arm, which leads them to the underground EDM club. Mm. That's probably the best, most normal use of spycraft or detective work in the whole movie. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, my last note. Uh, it's kind of just a dumb, dumb movie thing, but I guess you could call it bad tradecraft. He's got his optic camouflage that he can use to infiltrate the power plant. Once he finds, uh, Zach and all his minions, uh, crowded around their machine and ready to do the, the very bad thing. Uh, he just stands, he just turns his, uh, camouflage off at the top of a staircase, making a grand entrance saying, aha, here I am. It's for absolutely no reasons. I'd say uh, minus five points for you on that, Max. And that is everything, even remotely tradecraft uh, related, that I can find in this film. Well, I think we talked about him having the visual, but he to get that visual of uh, the kidnapped girl's house... He hacked the kidnapped team's camera. Did we talk about that? Because mm -mm. we, okay, and that's what gives that gives him the visual of her house with her sister in it as the evil Spice Girls break in wearing night vision goggles. So there was a piece of tradecraft, okay, right there. And uh, how about uh, <laughs> you know what I liked? There's nothing like a woman who knows all the cheat codes. When Max is trapped in the video game oh, yeah. and, is being, and is being attacked, his avatar rocket launches a bunch of video monsters, as she says, there's nothing like a woman who knows all the cheat codes. I thought that was cool. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, 
because well, it'll it'll help remind because we're getting really soon to ratings. I wanted to talk, make sure I talk about this sequence uh, when I talk about how much I like this film, uh, which we are actually just about to do. Agents, please report for debriefing on this operation. The director will see you now. As far as uh, how much I like this movie, I liked it more than I expected to. I suspect it's much better than uh, Female Apocalypse Warriors, so I don't think I had to go through the same kind of pain that I inflicted over uh, on the, the sci-fi wise guys. Maybe it's because my expectations were so low, and right off the bat, I mean, I remember texting you, in, after watching just the first eight minutes of the movie, I was like, Fred, I'm loving it. Um, but actually, I kind of think the movie is a little unbalanced in that I like the I like the first half more than the second half. And especially that video game sequence, I'm not sure how much it would have landed on me at the time. But I think it's I think it's a real weak point in the film. And the fact that it serves as our uh, denouement you know, our, our dramatic, climactic conclusion uh, is a major weak point of the film. Well, when I looked up, and, and believe me, I'm not as familiar with a lot of these mm -hmm. terms and slang, but it made use of uh, machinima, which is the method of making animated film using software similar to that designed for making video and computer games. Right? Mm -hmm. So... I don't know how much of a thing that was back in 2000, but they made use of it here. That's true. Let me look up uh, Lord of the Rings real quick. Um, let's see. A couple examples. Oh, yeah. Hey, 2001. There we go. A um, couple of cool examples. You know, uh, in the Batman movies, I'm not sure exactly which one, but... Uh, I think one of the earliest uses of this that was like really cool was like when the bats all like thousands of bats explode up out of the bat cave, they couldn't go in and animate each individual bat. And they also, they didn't just use like rubber stamp cloning, uh, you know, to come up with the 10,000 bats they needed. Uh, what they did is they programmed the, the bats to each have their own little like artificial intelligence and gave them, mm -hmm. like little rules to follow. So those are all actually AI bats, uh, like rudimentary AI bats. The reason I, I bring up Fellowship of the Ring, they do the same thing for those for the huge battle scenes where they have, again, like thousands of orcs, you know, like storming a castle or something. Instead mm -hmm. of going in and animating each individual one of them, they gave each one of them their own little... Uh, set of AI instructions. Each of them has like a goal that they're trying to accomplish and they're reacting to what's going on around them uh, in a way that, that makes sense to them and produces overall, you know, an epic battle scene of, of so much more complexity than any number of human animators could accomplish. Yeah. That, uh, that Peter Jackson was way ahead of his time. Great movies. Great movies. Fuck the Hobbit. But those movies, those Lord of the Ring movies are really good. Um, so my rating is kind of a tough one. I do like to look at past ratings as a guide. Uh, I'm ending up with a 1.5. It's pretty low. But uh, uh, and, and the reason 
it's a hard one for me is I think I enjoyed this movie, had more fun watching it than some of the movies that I've given a two to. But I think that some of those twos might grow on me more if I were to go rewatch them. And I don't think this movie, I don't think there's anything here to go back and, and revisit. If you've seen it, you've seen it, you get it. Well, I found myself pleasantly surprised. I went in here thinking I'm going to hate this. But what came to mind was camp. You know how I said the third season of The Man from Uncle blew it when they resorted to camp and it just didn't work in a spy series? <laughs> they made it work here. It was so over-the-top campy that I bought it, right? The overall campiness throughout the whole thing, you could see that the actors and the directors had tongue-in-cheek and a wink and a nod to the viewer to not that we're not taking this too seriously, right? I got. I have to give the film some credit along those lines. I I enjoyed the campiness of it, um, which I, ironically the man from Oakland could not pull off. You know, it was the very thing that killed that third season, mm. but they pulled it off here. And as I said before, um, it pulled off the ironic feat of both being of being both prophetic, right, and a, a film of its time. You know, with some of its, uh, with the drones, the Fitbits, and the whole relationship with AI, a female AI, all that stuff was ahead of its time, as we said. But it also was a movie of the time, of its time. So it, it kind of pulled off both. It's very appropriate for a movie, uh, for a 2000 film, to be both backwards looking and forwards looking. You know, it's the turn, it's the turn of well, the century. It's the turn of the millennium. Right. But to pull it off, you know, to say that is one thing, but to pull it off is another, you know, and as we said, with their, with their prophetic uh, use of things that hadn't really be done in other films, um, kind of prove that. All right, Fred. Well, let's put a Fred's star rating number on that, on that comment. One to five. What do you think? What did you say? <laughs> what number did you, one point one point something? Uh, we like we like to each give our own personal star ratings. This doesn't have to be a professional critic type rating. It's just how much. No, I know, I know. I'd say two because of the campiness. All right, all right, all right. I really can't argue with that. I was I was I was fooling around with a two in my head too. Um, let's hear about our. Best and worst tradecraft. Uh, once again, not to not to repeat the obvious, not a huge amount of tradecraft in this film. Mm -hmm. But of what there was, here's what I thought was the worst. Um, I think it was dumb to send the Spice Girls over to trash Lindsay's house to get the disc <laughs> uh, when she was already on board. She could have just gone and got it herself. Uh, number two, mm -hmm. uh, Really could have been a, a worse, a number one. Uh, the fact that Max Knight drops his calling card everywhere he goes and, and has uh, the license plate Max. Um, not very spy behavior. Uh, not very secretive. Um, and my number one worst easily is it's just so dumb. He shows up at the power plant. He's got his optical camouflage. He drops it and announces himself for no reasons except to make a dramatic entrance. 
All right. My worst number three is on the way to Zach's lair. The one evil Spice Girl suggests they stop and loot them all, just for the heck of it. Um, number two, Max blinds the evil Spice Girl with his high-tech glasses, even though they're wearing their own night vision goggles. And my worst is the head evil Spice Girl needlessly gives the cop the kiss of death with the poison capsule. Complete, completely unnecessary. Um, but, you know, uh, I think uh, I think James... Aren't, aren't James Bond heavies supposed to have a signature kill kind of way that they yeah. do things? Um, yeah, whether it's a whether it's a knife coming out of a toe or or a, or a or a hat that's a frisbee or jaws with, uh, jaws razor blades on it jaws with his teeth. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, at some point someone must yeah. have said like, "How about if she kills guys by kissing them? How would that work?" Yeah. Um, yeah. Over to the best. Uh, Oh, best. I mean, you know, there, there again, it was like a micro subplot blink and you would have missed it, but at least this movie did have like somebody trying to do something approximating tradecraft uh, by having an FBI mole uh, infiltrating Zach's organization. Um, number two is even better. You know, Zach is uh, kidnapping a scientist and then, and then seducing them, uh, 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 appealing to their ego uh, to get the information and and uh, cooperation that he needs from her. Uh, number one best, hacking the traffic cameras to locate the van. That's easily the most realistic thing that we see done uh, in this in this film. I'm sure that happens all the time. All right. My number three is when Max is trapped in the video game and being attacked, his avatar... Rocket launches a bunch of video monsters as she quips, there's nothing like a woman who knows all the cheat codes. Number two, Max hacks the kidnap team's camera, which gives him a visual of her house with her sister in it, as the evil Spice Girls break in wearing night vision goggles, which leads him there. Okay. And my best one is Max and his partner examine the tattoo on the evil girl's arm, which leads them to their underground EDM club. All right, all right. So, before we give this a final park bench rating, I think it's a good time to talk about uh, what the basic requirements of a spy movie or spy TV series are. And I still haven't written this down and, and really like uh, codified it, but I think it goes something like this. You have to have people that are working for instance, they're trying to gain intelligence that someone else doesn't want them to have while concealing uh, information that would be valuable to the other team. And they have to be working for organizations. If you fulfill those criteria, that's why, for instance, movies like The Departed, you know, which some people said, Todd, that's not a spy movie. That's a mafia movie. I said, well, no, no, no. I mean, that's, there's, there's members of organizations infiltrating the others, yeah. concealing information in order to gain information. Right. That's, right. That's a spy story. Um, yeah. A lot of spy. A lot of spying going on in that. And, yeah. And reporting back. And, yeah. Yeah. It's fully a spy movie. Uh, you know, counterintelligence, uh, infiltration. Mm -hmm. um, the third, the the other little caveat, like, to get to, to get on this program for us to talk about it. 
uh, is if it has the word spy in the title. If it has the word spy in the title, I'll, I'll talk about it. Uh, this movie has spy in the title. And that's pretty much the main reason it got onto this show. Uh, besides the, the whole thing of, hey, wanted to do a B movie um, to add to my collection. That said, the park bench rating on this is abysmally low. Uh, we have to go. We have to go right all the way to the bottom. Push even below the one. I say this movie is joining Spy Kids. <laughs> Don't say Flintstone. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Spy Kids, and let me just triple check. There might have been more tradecraft in the man called Flintstone. To be perfectly honest. Um, <laughs> nope. Yep. It's joining Spy Kids and The Man Called Flintstone with a 0.5 park bench rating, the lowest possible before it's just not even trying to be a spy movie. Uh, always my example of a of a of a zero park bench rating would be Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give it its day in court if you want. Do you, I? doubt that you do but do you want to try to rescue it up to a one do you have any nope. kind of argument i didn't think so no 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 i didn't think so so yeah uh more fun to be had from this movie than than to learn anything about uh how spies uh apply their craft uh thank you for joining me fred yeah uh, I enjoyed it, as I said, more than I thought I would, just from sheer campiness. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Protocol 9 initiated. This podcast will self-destruct in 20 seconds. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.